This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The healthcare industry is top of mind these days as it experiences business model shifts, technological breakthroughs, and the Trump administration drug pricing policies. To talk through the changing landscape of healthcare, we're joined by Joe Natori. Joe's been a partner in the firm's consumer retail and healthcare group within the investment banking division, but she's taking on a new role, literally as we speak, leading global healthcare investing for our merchant bank. Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start by talking about what's going on in the stock market. Healthcare started the year off super strong, but recently has been a bit more volatile. Is this being driven by sector-specific concerns, or is it just attributable to the broader sell-off we've seen in the markets? I think when you look at the healthcare industry, from an operating standpoint, the companies are still performing incredibly well. The margins, the growth profile are probably the highest they've been in recent history. So I think most people feel like some of the downdraft is because of macro issues. And if you look at the overall market, that's largely been the reaction concerns about inflation, interest rates. I also think the blooms come off a little bit on the roads of tax reform. You know, there was a lot of buzz around tax reform and what companies could do with those dollars. And frankly, there just hasn't been a lot of activity. And so investors are a little bit fatigued with that. So maybe some of that's coming out. out A lot of of merger activity. Just uh, value creating activity. Yep. So whether it's merger, whether it's investments, even capital return has been slower. Hmm. For a lot of reasons, but it's been slower relative to the cash availability that these companies have right now. Some sectors have outperformed this year on a relative basis. What are some of the reasons that investors are differentiating and what areas have underperformed and why? When you think about healthcare, you can separate it into a couple of buckets in terms of risk. Like I said, operating wise, all these businesses are performing really well. Healthcare is a really defensive industry. But if you look at the environment right now, it's really tied to the risk around policy. Just as a proxy, if you think about when Hillary Care or Obamacare was really kind of making noise in the market and creating a level of uncertainty, healthcare as an index traded on average 10 to 12 percent lower than the S&P. And that's kind of the environment that we're in now. And so when you think about the sectors that have outperformed, it's probably those that have less exposure to that risk. Med tech, largely separate from the drug pricing issues. Life sciences research and tools, completely agnostic to what's going on in pricing. Managed care, surprisingly, there's less of a single-payer system risk right now. So those companies have been outperforming. Hospitals have been outperforming. Those with less of that exposure. When you think about the companies that are underperforming, it's obviously those that have a lot more. So generics, anything in the supply chain. Trump talked about the middlemen, so PBMs, distributors who are taking margins off the top before drugs get to consumers. Pharma companies, pricing is one of the reasons they're facing headwinds. And in the middle, you have the mid-cap biotech. Great outperformance in terms of science and data and innovation and actually getting drugs to market. M&A has been a little light. It's hard to pick the winners there. It's, it trades a little bit on how much M&A is happening in the market. But if you look at the biotech industry, most of the M&A actually happens without a process. So it's one pharma company thinking about one biotech company. I think half of M&A is done that way. So as an investor, it's hard to invest in that space. But that speculation is still holding up that market. Talking about M&A a little bit, sometimes when asset prices are down or a little yeah. depressed and there's a lot of 
cash sloshing around the system. Financing is still pretty cheap. That's usually a spur to activity. What's going on with M&A activity? It should be good. It should really be good. After tax reform, companies have access to more cash than they ever had. Interest rates are at really record lows when you think about their ability to borrow. And investors and boards really want companies to be strategic. They see the healthcare environment changing, and they're pushing companies to really make things happen. The thing to keep it in perspective and maybe what's kept it in check is valuations are still at an all-time high. And so when you look on average at M&A multiples over time, yes, they've gone up over the last five years, but not as much as the market's gone up. And there's still a lot of concern about overpaying for companies and taking that risk on. You have an odd dynamic now where because interest rates are low, you even have private equity firms beating strategic companies in auctions, which is kind of a rare point in time event. But I think it reflects some of those dynamics. Could it happen more? I mean, I think the natural place we expected it to happen was pharma. That hasn't played out, and there's kind of other dynamics there. And we've seen interesting transactions on the larger side on the supply chain consumer angle that have pushed some M&A. But kind of M&A for doing M&A is out of vogue. Just doing deals for synergies aren't being valued as highly. you got to do deals for growth or some other strategic reason, and those are just hard to do. So let's talk a little bit more about one of the biggest trends in healthcare, which is the increasing consumerism or yep. whatever you want to call it. Aetna's pending acquisition of CVS is a good example of this. Why are companies focused on reaching retail investors directly? It's pretty simple when you cut through it. Consumers are going to have more influence in healthcare. And you kind of measure it in any stat that you can look at. 25% of consumers have high deductible insurance. If you look at that stat over history, I think the average deductible for patients right now is over 2000 A decade ago, it was a $1,000 deductible. That's more money coming out of consumers' pockets. The other interesting stat is 25% of consumers are delaying serious medical care. That was more like 12% in 2000 Because of the big out-of-pocket costs. Because of the big out-of-pocket costs. And so the system of rising health care costs for the past decade, that's been pushed to consumers, and now consumers are going to push back. And the issue with noncompliance of health care, I mean, this has been proven time and time again, it's just more expensive to the health care system. You're just kicking the can down the road. And so this balance has to be achieved where consumers are taking their medications, getting treatment for their conditions, yet costs are managed. And so that voice of consumers is just going to be increasingly important, that influence. One of the other big things we're seeing, and this was part of the Affordable Care Act, which is this shift from volume-based pricing to value-based care. What does that mean and how are we seeing that play out in the industry? I think it's no longer a shift. I think it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. A couple of different reasons with this rising cost, and we just talked about how consumers are going to push back, the system has to do something. And it's going to play out in different ways. The government's focused on a lot of different ways to implement value-based care. There was a methodology that was more government-mandated with the Democratic administration. This administration is trying to use market forces to really get to the same place, which I think is providers are going to take a little bit more risk on outcomes. We're starting to see that on the margin if you just look at where care is taking place. So after the recession, which was another period where consumers backed away from health care, if you look at 
where patients are getting their care, high-cost hospital, provider area, or more lower-cost outsourcing. That volume in the high-cost centers is not recovered. The volume in the lower-cost settings has recovered. So some of this stuff is working. And so we'll have to see how it all plays out. But it's going to be nibbles around the margin in the whole system. And everybody's focused on it. And even the product companies are focused on it. So between the rise of consumerism and value-based care, you're seeing a little bit of a push towards vertical consolidation in the Mm -hmm. industry, an industry that's still hugely fractured in a lot of ways. Talk us through what that might mean for the future of the industry. There's just a lot of uncertainty right now. And the one thing that is certain is you need to consolidate influence. And when you look at all the M&A that's happened, that's largely been the thesis behind it. When you think about CVS and Aetna, for Aetna, maybe diabetes is a great example. If you're a diabetic, you will see your physician two times a year. You'll see your pharmacist 20 times a year. Diabetes is a chronic condition where noncompliance is incredibly expensive to the healthcare system. So how can Aetna manage outcomes? By leveraging that pharmacy relationship, potentially, and driving compliance. Making sure people are getting reminders. Reminders, taking their drugs. Taking their drugs, showing up every time they need to show up. Exactly. Getting their refills. Exactly. And, you know, you see that in other areas. When you think about who employs physicians... United in the last two years has been the largest acquirer of physicians in this country. And if you think about that, it used to be the large hospital chains who are recruiting all the docs. It's an insurance company. And part of the reason is owning and controlling the provider channel allows them to direct traffic. Networks are becoming more narrow. And so these insurers can actually direct traffic now within their own pod they're also acquiring some of the low-cost areas, so palliative care, home care, areas that are lower cost but theoretically could provide as good of a service. And so controlling that network, that influence, if you think about that as the theme, that's where we're seeing a lot of the activity. So there was a big announcement this year between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan, three very different companies, where they're talking about reinventing at some level how they procure health care how should we think about that in terms of what's happening more broadly in the industry? Just to put that in context, the number of lives those three companies have are about a million. They're the second in combination largest self-insured employer. Walmart, I think, has like 1.3. When you think about the dollar spent in employer insurance, that's over a trillion dollars. Medicare is a little over half of that. Yet, the influence and their ability to direct where those dollars go has been negligible. And part of the reason is I think employers spend a lot of time in benefit design, like what you and I care about, versus actually fixing the system. Less than 10% of patients make up more than 50% of healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. They're the at, chronic diseases. It's the chronic diseases, CNS, all those things that really impact the system. And so their idea is to basically take their lives and try to optimize their population and maybe share that across the board. It's complicated. It'll be interesting what they end up doing. So Amazon gets a lot of attention in this industry, in every industry really, because there's this perception that they could be a real competitive threat for some sectors of healthcare, as we've seen in other parts of the retail businesses. Is that um, threat real? We haven't seen much penetration to date by Amazon, but... Is there something there that could really transform the system? 
It's the fear of Amazon in healthcare, and it's moved stocks, billions of dollars, with any sort of rumor in the sector. And I think it'd be foolish to assume that they're not going to have an impact. Their reach into consumers is just too great. I do think it might be a little premature to assume that Amazon, and this is with no knowledge, but Amazon's going to try to get into a highly regulated reimbursement environment dependent on innovation. There's a lot of life cycle change. That just doesn't seem like where Amazon's core competency is. But I do think, like on the margin, where they touch consumers, the healthcare system is going to have to react to that. And I think it's going to manifest in different ways over time. And what are some of the places where they could have the most impact? And this is my opinion, but if I were Amazon and thought about where my reach was with consumers, the data, the touch points with consumers, their ability to distribute products, I think the low-hanging fruit that could have the biggest impact is in chronic care management. Develop programs They have the diapers.com, but maybe you can have a diabetes.com where you get your insulin, you get your testing kits, you get reminders. They can deliver that. That's a pretty low physician touch point. CNS is another area. If they really were getting ambitious, thinking about obesity as something to tackle, they have Whole Foods, they have Alexa, they have telemedicine. That could be kind of another vertical pod where they can actually have influence without dealing with all the noise in the system. Another area that's underway in the healthcare industry, but also in other industries, is the influence of big tech, big data, artificial intelligence, and the like. How are companies leveraging this new wave of data and technology? Obviously, it's been a technology-forward industry in a lot of ways on the research side, but less on the distribution and IT, IT yeah. side. Yeah. yeah. It's really behind. Like you said, the healthcare industry is really, for the past 50-plus years in this country, focused more on innovation, which has been wonderful. The issue now is we have an infrastructure in this country that, from an information patient data standpoint, it's very diffuse, and there's no connectivity, and people are trying to figure out ways to make it all work together. But the power of information is amazing. If you could have a database that looked at treatment of patients and their outcomes and what you did and what's worked and what didn't, something as simple as that could make huge impacts. The quality of care in rural areas could be comparable to what you're seeing in urban areas. That's pretty dramatic. The problem is that data is so diffuse, it's hard to get. Well, some of it's on your watch. Some of it's on your watch. But Apple's got it, not the healthcare companies, right? Exactly. Apple, Google, IBM, they're all trying to get into it and trying to figure this out. The problem is they're dealing with really, really old infrastructure. Another place where we're seeing some innovation is understanding, obviously, how genetics is influencing healthcare outcomes. Where are we today in the genome revolution, and what's the potential further down the line for dealing with these intractable issues like cancer? This is a really exciting space. We're really at the tip of what we're going to figure out with genetics. Just to put it in perspective, I was already in the industry in 2003, I think, when the genome was first sequenced. That cost $100 million, one human genome, to sequence. Two years ago, the technology got to a place where you could sequence a human genome for a thousand bucks. A couple more years, it'll be a hundred bucks. The insight into trying to figure out our genetics and the cause of disease and the therapies, we're just really at the beginning of that. 
If you even look basically at what's happened the last 10 years and you think about even breast cancer as an example, BRCA, that's probably the easiest genetic test that's been out there. It's one gene, pretty good indicator of breast cancer, ovarian cancer for women. Huge change in terms of how women seek diagnosis and think about breast cancer. There's tests around chemosensitivity. Should you be taking this drug? Should you not be taking this drug? As tumors change, there's a whole industry around trying to identify how tumors change and what the best therapeutic is. It's just really at the early stages. And it's going to be pretty impressive when we start to see the gene therapy drugs and the gene editing and all those waves of innovation around therapies to almost cure diseases that were deadly. So some people get a little scared by the potential as well of cracking the genome. Are there pitfalls to the technology that companies are navigating right now? There were pitfalls when the genome was first sequenced. I remember covering a bunch of companies that tried to basically patent every gene known to existence until we figured out that genes are really the property of the person. Going forward, I think it's a little bit more of an ethical and legal question. There was a case, I don't know if you saw it a few weeks ago, where there was a cold case solved by the police going to one of these consumer genetic profile companies where they compared the DNA from the sample to this database and found relatives that got them closer to... There's the serial the, killer the serial in California. Kill. Yeah. Exactly. And so there's some questions about how the data can be used, who can use it, who has access to it. And I think once it becomes a $100 test and anyone can get their genome sequence, you got to balance the legal and the ethics side with the potential of predicting disease and curing disease. So it'll be a little bit of a navigation. What are some of the other healthcare technologies that look exciting over the next five and 10 years? This might be a little bit of name, but blockchain. A lot of buzz around blockchain in the financial industry. I actually think there's a lot of applications in healthcare. When you think about the need for security, the need to get disparate sources of information. Blockchain, I think you could make patient data patient-centric that can follow the patient around, whether you move jobs, whether you switch insurance plans, whether you go to different pharmacies. There's an interoperability to that data that doesn't exist with current systems today. If you think genetics is at the beginning, this is like at the tippy top of the beginning. This year, I think it was a couple months ago where Humana and United and Quest and Multiplan, basically these testing businesses that have a lot of data combined to see if there's something they could do with blockchain. We'll see how that all evolves, but it could be very promising solving some of the IT issues. We talked a little bit about the biotech subsector that's driving a lot of innovation in the industry, particularly single product-led biotech startups are popping up left and right. Are these startups scaling, or are they mostly just being acquired by big pharma companies that are starved in their own pipelines? I think it all goes back down to the access to capital in this market and that M&A dynamic that we talked about. It's hard to predict with certainty that these companies are going to get taken out. Like 50% of these companies, or one buyer approaches one seller, no auction, and most of these companies sell to the first seller. So it's hard to predict if you're going to get bought or not. And with the access of capital in the market, most of these companies can fund through a standalone plan. And so that's what we're seeing. It wasn't the case 10 years ago. I think from 2002 for almost a decade, there was almost no funding. And so companies had to really reorient themselves to partnerships and sales. I think with the cash, it, we're just in a different market right now. Obviously, this has been a big source, though, of growth for major pharma. They haven't been able to develop their own pipelines. At least some of them haven't been. Are they cutting back on R&D and just allocating more to smart acquisitions? 
or are we going to see a little bit of both from the big companies? No one's cutting back on R&D. And if you look at any of the proxy industries like the CRO space or the life sciences research tool space, all of those businesses are growing really well organically, which is a proxy of how farmers spending its dollars. On the inorganic side, one interesting analysis we did on the banking side was to take a look at cash and pharma. And so it's interesting. Last year, if you looked at global pharma, and you looked at, with a little bit of leverage, what they could do from an acquisition standpoint, the top global pharma could do about $400 billion of M&A. Big number. It's a fair amount, just to put that in perspective. What's the deal volume overall? Exactly. So if you yeah. look at market caps of biotech companies that are like north of that target acquisition, kind of north of 500 to $20 billion, that's about a little over $300 billion right now. So Total. they bought every single company of that size. Post-tax reform, and this is where it gets really interesting, the amount of cash in that industry that they can actually utilize and generate by 2020 will be $700 billion. And so there's real questions on how they're going to deploy that capital. They can't buy enough. The dividend can't be high enough. They can't repurchase enough of their shares. So it'll be interesting to see how the farm industry reacts to that much cash and how much investors will let them get away with holding it. We've not yet seen the type of mega deal activity within biopharma that we saw last year. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, the major pharma companies have underperformed this year. What's changed since last year? Obviously tax reform, but what's your view on the rest of the year? We all anticipated the investors, bankers, pharma companies even publicly said they were pretty focused on M&A post-tax reform. I think what's happened is there's a scarcity of assets out there that really moves the needle. If you think about the market caps of global big pharma, anything less than $15 billion is a tuck-in for these guys. really doesn't move the needle. And some of these acquisitions, larger ones, haven't worked out for pharma. The other piece to this is the uncertainty around drug pricing. So when you think about where they want to deploy capital, and this is just more of an M&A issue, but there's so much uncertainty it's really hard to predict with a fair degree of accuracy where drug pricing is going to end up on any particular product, especially pre-launch. And that makes it hard to get to a price. Makes right? it hard to get to a right. price, and valuations are at all-time high. So that makes it very challenging to sell. Mm. It makes it very challenging to buy. And so it's been a little bit of a roadblock. So a lot of biotech companies, smaller companies, have been choosing to raise money through public markets and through the IPOs, a little different than other sectors, rather than relying on private funding. Why are they doing that to get them through clinical trials and the like rather than going the old-fashioned way through VC? <laughs> they still go through VCs. And the VC environment in biotech is very, very strong. Issue is the public markets are so easy to access capital and so readily willing to give these companies capital. Most companies decide to go public sooner rather than later just to get access to the bigger pool. Medical devices is the one pillar of the healthcare sector we haven't talked a lot about. What's top of mind in that sector? MedTech went through its growing pains over the last decade. They had to deal with the medical device tax, which has been repealed. They also went through their own kind of Me Too phase where they were developing really small variations on the same things. There's like 20 hips and 20 knees. And if you're thinking about value-based medicine, the market really rejected that strategy. And so they kind of had to go through their own transformation. But now, and we talked about this earlier, they're a little bit immune from some of the other policy forces that other industries are dealing with. And so now they're trading at 
all-time highs. They're all performing really well. They've come into their own a little bit. In the small cap space, there's real innovation, and the growth has been fantastic, so people are really supportive. What are those kind of companies thinking about in terms of R&D and innovation, particularly in this world of value-based care? I think it depends on the type of company. On the small side, you're definitely seeing more innovation, real innovation. On the larger side, that value-based care is interesting because what it's done on the R&D side is instead of focusing on physician preference, what's the coolest, sexiest device that I can come up with that'll get the doctor to use it, it's really how can I help the system? How do I reduce readmissions? How can I follow the patient home? Putting intelligence on some of these devices those sorts of things have been a little bit more of the forefront. Taken to the extreme, I think when you think about a company like Intuitive Surgical and the surgical robotic side of the world, that has taken off because of value-based medicine. You know, you can replicate procedures with an accuracy and an efficiency that surgeons just can't do. And so that business is just on value-based, even though it's tech and really innovative, you know, that's why it's really grown. There have been some big transactions in this space, but by and large, there's just a handful of them, and there's a pretty large universe of these yeah. smaller and medium-sized companies. Will it stay that way, or do you see some changes? In yeah, that? no, medtech is a little tougher. You think there should be a good thesis around consolidation for medtech, but when you dig into the industry, it's not a direct overlap. It's a very specialized sort of sale. The sales force spends a lot of time with physicians, walking them through procedures, how to use the device. And that doesn't lend itself to a lot of scale or a lot of products. A limit to the bag, I guess, is a way to think about it. And so some of the consolidation that's happened has been in areas where there's less of that call point issue, like in hospital supply. It's easier to consolidate. How should we think about China in this space? So China's transformed a lot of other industries, certainly more demand in China for higher quality healthcare over time. How is it transforming the industry or has it transformed the industry yet? Like any industry, anywhere, China is viewed as a huge opportunity for growth. And on the healthcare side, Western devices, medicine is valued at a premium in China. That area of the world continues to grow. It's been a measured growth relative to some of the competitive concerns there. But China as a whole, from a healthcare, they're investing. And I would say some of the bigger changes we've seen over the last couple of years is how far China is moving up the technology curve. One piece of evidence of that is when you look at China ASCO, which is the big oncology conference that happens here as well, it's the same size now as the U.S. ASCO. There's now a whole group of innovative gene editing IO oncology companies that are Chinese that are kind of trading on its own valuation, valuation hurdles. So it'll be interesting how it all transforms, but definitely seeing the move up the technology curve. Let's go back to government policy. There's obviously a lot of political back and forth, and that's one of the issues that sort of not plagued the sector, but there's been a lot of back and forth around what's going on with the Affordable Care Act. The Trump administration tried to repeal it unsuccessfully. Are investors and companies wary about the changes that might still be to come? I think it's the uncertainty. There's always in healthcare ways to have a real business that makes money healthcare is not going anywhere. But it's the uncertainty of how it all plays out that's really spooking the market. And so whether you're for Obamacare or against Obamacare, one thing that it has done is made it real policy, policy to be debated. 
there's different approaches to that. There's a Republican administration approach. There's midterms change, maybe some of that. And that's part of it. If in the midterms we see a Democratic majority, then maybe some of the policies that we thought were in place change. Issue for healthcare companies is it's not an industry that changes on the dime. And so that uncertainty needs to be adjusted to, and that's probably what's causing the issue more than anything else. So we're talking here right in the middle of the month of May. President Trump just revealed last week his administration's plan to lower drug pricing. Market seemed to think of mostly pretty good news for the industry. What are we to make of it? I don't think it was a surprise, which is probably why there was a little bit of a relief rally on Friday after his speech. He's been focused on pricing. He's been focused on getting the middlemen out, negotiating all those points by generics. All those points kind of came out in his speech. It's going to be hard to get through. And the sense after the speech was that the real change isn't going to come through executive action. It's got to go through Congress, which, as we've talked about, is not going to be the easiest thing to get done. Mm -hmm. So... Under um, any scenario. Under, under any scenario. Right. Healthcare is here to stay as a policy discussion. If you kind of distill it down, it's going to be, is it government mandate or is it market forces? And there's variations around how you implement it. So, Joe, you've been a healthcare banker for a long time now, for a young person Thank anyway. You. <laughs> Thank you for you, not saying my age. What surprised you most about the industry's evolution since you started doing this? Look, I think why I've always loved healthcare and got into banking in the first place was to be in the healthcare industry is just how the industry really responds to outside change. It's remarkable. When I started 20 years ago, the idea of CVS and Aetna would have just been so remote. But that's how the industry deals with these external forces. And so just how they think about adapting themselves has been absolutely fascinating. And we talked about the technology. It's really exciting to see how all these technologies are going to influence healthcare. And this is like real stuff. So that's always been really fascinating to me. So you're moving away, as we mentioned, from banking to the merchant bank, which means you'll be an investor in the space. Yes. How are you thinking about that change? And what are you most excited about as you get a chance to deploy capital in the space. Yeah. As a banker, you're more of an advisor. You can advise on deals and you stay with companies for a long time, but the companies have to implement the advice. Now I have to live with it as an investor, so that's a bit of a change. But I think it allows you to get more deeply involved in companies and strategies. There's a longer-term nature to being an investor that I really like. And from a global perspective, often we get kind of sucked into what our individual clients are doing as a banker, but being able to sit and think about the industry from a global perspective, especially now with all the changes going on, just seems really interesting. Interesting time. All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing from you next time about how the investing's going. Thanks for joining <laughs> <Hopefully> us. Good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on May 14, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. 
The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research, or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.